This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the Big Dinosaur Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. So this week, our dinosaur of the day is Abelosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. And we want to give a special shout out this week to our patrons at the level where we give them a shout out for all their support, and we really appreciate it. So a big special thank you to Chris, Nicholas, Scotty, and Kyle and Betsy. Yeah, thank you so much, and thank you to all our patrons. Yeah, it really helps us put on the podcast, and it really gives us the incentive to record regularly and keeps us motivated. We just posted a picture of the route that we're going to be driving through Alberta and British Columbia and Oregon and Washington and Montana and Idaho and Nevada and California on the 4th of July week to go to some dinosaur museums. So we're going to do a dig in Montana for the first time, which is really exciting. So if you want to check that out, you can go to patreon.com slash I know dino. First in the news is an article titled Spiclipius, which might be my new favorite dinosaur name. I really like Spiclipius. Say that ten times first. Spiclipius. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So it's titled Spiclipius Shiporum, a boldly audacious new chasmosaurine ceratopsid from the Judith River Formation in the Upper Cretaceous Campanian of Montana in the U.S., And it was published in PLOS One, which is always good because then we can see all the details. It was written by Jordan C. Mallon and others, including Pete Larson, who we've talked to before. So ceratopsians are often separated into two big groups. There's the chasmosaurines and the centrosaurines. And in the title, they mention that this is a chasmosaurine. And generally speaking, that means that it's more likely to have larger brow horns. You can think of something like a triceratops. Whereas centrosaurines tend to have shorter brow horns, but tend to have larger spikes coming out of their frills. Think of something like a styracosaurus. But there are lots of exceptions to these generalizations, and it seems like half of the time when we're talking about new dinosaurs in the ceratopsian family, they don't really fit into the groups the way you'd expect them to. So Spiclipius is a part of the chasmosaurian group, and it's considered closely related to pentaceratops and utahceratops. But interestingly, it does have pretty big brow horns, which likely curved out towards the sides of its head rather than kind of pointing up as if, you know, it's going to defend itself against something coming down at it or something. It also had a pretty ornamental looking frill with lots of epiossifications around the edge, and it had four particularly tall points sticking out of the top of its frill that were curved in different directions, and it looks really cool. 
So spiclipius comes from the Latin for spike and shield, which refers to all of those spiky points around its frill. And the specific name, Shiporum, is after Dr. Bill and Linda Ship, who were the original owners of the holotype. According to Live Science, originally it was nicknamed Judith, after the Judith River Formation, and it was the first dinosaur found in the formation in the U.S., but many had been found in Canada before this. So like I said, it was found in the Judith River Formation. I'm not sure if they're 100% accurate about no dinosaurs being found in the Judith River Formation on the U.S. side, but I couldn't find any specific details on where all of them had been found. This one was discovered in the Judith River Formation about 80 miles or 130 kilometers straight east from Great Falls, Montana. And interestingly, the Judith River Formation is the site of the first ever Ceratopsian discovery. Not surprisingly, it's named Ceratops, and it was discovered by Charles Marsh in 1888. But since the material was so incomplete, many consider it now a nomen dubium. But the Ceratops name is a pretty good one, so it kind of stuck around anyway. The fossil is estimated to be about 76 million years old, meaning it was around just as Panaceratops was first coming onto the scene, and it appears to have been an adult, being at least 10 years old when it died. They say that the specimen was badly broken and scattered prior to burial. Additionally, many of the bones had sawtooth breaks, which may indicate that the bones still contained collagen when they broke. Combined with tyrannosaurid teeth in the same quarry and apparent tooth marks in the Spiclipius, they think that it was at least scavenged, if not outright hunted. But based on the lack of other damage, it was likely buried very quickly after it had been scavenged. So they found parts of the skull, pretty much the complete frill, two complete horns, and one nearly complete horn, the upper part of the beak, the middle of the jaw with lots of teeth, which were arranged in batteries, rib fragments, vertebrae, partial ilium, and a few partial leg bones. They believe that the leg shows signs of osteomyelitis, which is a type of infection that reaches the bone through the bloodstream and then spreads out into the bone, which obviously is not a great condition to have. And on top of that, it looked like it had osteoarthritis, which is what most people just call arthritis. It's that joint issue that tons of people get. The authors think that this study supports a split within Chasmosaurinae into Chasmosaurus and Triceratops kind of subgroups. And Scyplipius is on the Chasmosaurus side of the divide, not the Triceratops divide, which might explain some of its features. So pretty cool. I always like when new dinosaurs are discovered. And this one looks really neat. You guys should look up what it looks like, especially with its horns that kind of point off to the sides. One article said that it looked kind of like it had ears sticking out towards the edges, like a horse ears or something, where it's kind of like sticking straight out to the sides. Horse ears, huh? You know what I mean? Where they like curved but pointed out. Oh, yeah. Next, thanks to our patron Luke for this one. There's an article titled Decoupled Form and Function in Disparate Herbivorous Dinosaur Clads that was published in Nature's Scientific Reports. It was written by Stefan Lautenschlager and others. The main focus of this article was looking at distant herbivorous relatives in dinosauria and what their similar traits can show us. So they compared a sauropodomorph, an ornithischian, and a theropod, which are pretty much the extremes of the dinosaur family tree. Specifically, they looked at the prosauropod Palladiosaurus, the Therizinosaur, Relicosaurus, 
and the Stegosaurus. They noted that the skulls and teeth are pretty similar, so one might assume that they ate similar things, but they say that convergent evolution is not the same thing as functional convergence, so they wanted to look more deeply into it. In the past, a lot of people had assumed that the dinosaurs that had similar skulls probably had similar eating habits, but there hadn't been any good modeling or evidence to prove that. So like similar studies, they used biomechanical models and simulations to test how they might have fed and determine what they likely would have eaten. So the Stegosaurus in their simulations had a maximum bite force of 410 newtons, or 92 pounds, while the Platyosaurus maxed out at 138 newtons, or 31 pounds, and Ehrlichosaurus could only manage 121 newtons, or 27 pounds. So those last two are pretty similar, and they're also similar to average extant herbivores, which are typically in the 88 to 141 newton range, or, you know, 20 to 30 pounds, roughly. Ultimately, the Stegosaurus had a much stronger bite than the other two, even when they scaled down the surface area of its biting area to match the smaller Therizinosaur. This means that Stegosaurus could eat tougher plants and therefore a wider range of plants than the other herbivores. This runs counter to some previous estimations that Stegosaurus and the Therizinosaur, or Lycosaurus, with their, quote, superficially similar skulls, end quote, would have had similar eating habits. So I always like these studies because they take a new approach towards the traditional science of just kind of comparing how things look and making some assumptions based on their bones, whereas with the advent of all this fancy computer modeling technology, we can actually simulate what they might have been able to do with the muscle attachment points that we can see and the stresses that they would have caused on their jaws. So pretty cool. I'd be interested to see what some of the other herbivores, like maybe sauropods or hadrosaurs, would do compared to these guys, but I guess that's for another day. In the UK, a student named Megan Jacobs has found a fossilized Eotyrannus tooth, and she was walking on Compton Beach and happened to see this tooth in a rockfall. It's 1.1 inches, or 2.8 centimeters long, and Oliver Madison from the Dinosaur Expedition Center, who identified the tooth, said in a BBC article, quote, It is significantly bigger than previous finds and shows Eotyrannus was definitely bigger than estimates and may be even bigger still, end quote. Current estimates are that it's 13 feet or 4 meters long, but the tooth increases estimates to 20 feet or 6 meters long. It's a pretty big increase. Yeah. The, the tooth is on display at the Dinosaur Expedition Center Museum and raises the possibility that there's an Eotyrannus skeleton somewhere nearby. That would be cool. Would Although be. we know that a lot of these carnivorous dinosaurs were just kind of dumping teeth everywhere. That's true. <laughs> so it but, could be like looking for a needle in a haystack after you find that tooth. Maybe, but also would argue that it's hard to find a tooth. Hard to see one, spot one. That's true. It's cool that you found it. Mm -hmm. Next up, according to Robert Rees, who's a professor of vertebrate paleontology at the University of Toronto, T-Rex may have had lips. He recently presented at the Canadian Society of Vertebrate Paleontology and stated that he doesn't think that when a theropod's mouth was closed, that any of their teeth would have been exposed. And that necessarily means that they would have had bigger lips than we typically depict. 
There hasn't been an actual study or paper published yet, so we'll have to wait and see what kind of evidence he puts forward when he publishes. But the first thing I did when I heard this was I looked up alligator and crocodile mouths to see how their lips and teeth looked since they're the only living archosaurs that have teeth. And like I remembered, they have teeth sticking out all over the place when their mouths are closed. But apparently crocodiles are the only animal with exposed teeth that have enamel and being semi-aquatic may make this less of a problem than it would be for something like a Tyrannosaurus rex. Unfortunately, since there are so few living archosaurs that have teeth, it really limits what we can look at because birds obviously don't have teeth. And if dinosaurs' teeth were completely enclosed by their lips, their mouths would look a lot more like a Komodo dragon than crocodiles. And usually when I look at a picture of a sauropod, I think that it kind of looks like a Komodo dragon. So it wouldn't be that far off, but it would probably make them look a little bit less menacing without the teeth sticking out like a crocodile if they were completely enclosed. Do you think you could tell if it was smiling? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> One thing I was thinking was Komodo dragons have pretty short teeth. They're basically more like a shark or something where they have a lot of sharp teeth and they try to tear things apart. Whereas something like a T-Rex had those huge teeth that it used for breaking bones, which might be a little bit more like an alligator. So I kind of wonder how the scientific community is going to come down on this. Yeah. And there's been so much dino art and so much built upon theropods having their teeth exposed that it's pretty weird to think about them totally enclosed in their lips. That's true. There was an interesting article in KCET about non-avian dinosaurs in California. And actually, before reading this, I didn't realize that any non-avian dinosaurs had been discovered in California. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It said the though the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles displays mostly fossils of dinosaurs from Montana and Utah and other states, there are a couple local dinosaurs. And the dinosaur hall has an Augustinolophus morrisi, which was a duck-billed dinosaur that lived 72 to 66 million years ago. And in the San Diego Museum of Natural History, you can see Aletopelta combsi, an armored dinosaur from about 75 million years ago. Based on other dinosaur finds in western North America, California probably had other dinosaurs, but they're hard to find. And this is a combination of having the wrong kinds of rocks. Most of them are from the wrong age or from deep seas where dinosaurs didn't live. The field work being difficult, and so far they've only found fragments and teeth. So it's a bit discouraging. But it's good to know they're out there. Yeah, it makes sense when you look at these maps of the Mesozoic that there would have been a fair amount of coastline in California, which is the kind of place where a lot of these things get preserved, where it's marshy and stuff. But it's all about what rock gets pushed up millions of years later, and it's just like a big lottery game. So yeah. Montana won the <laughs> U.S., <laughs> not so much California. Next, thanks to Marky via Facebook for this one. According to National Geographic News, scientists have found a two-headed reptile that lived at the same time as dinosaurs. It's a... Choristodere, an aquatic reptile that looks like a modern crocodile, and it lived 120 million years ago. The specimen is a hatchling found in China and has, quote, two perfectly formed heads and necks fused at the base, end quote. Two-headed animals are rare and they don't often live long in the wild, though there's apparently a two-headed tortoise at the Natural History Museum in Geneva, Switzerland that's lived there for 10 years. 
What happens is an embryo is damaged in the womb and a lesion forms that causes some parts to duplicate, and this is called axial bifurcation. And paleontologists believe that this particular find is real because, quote, the slab bearing the fossil is untouched and shows absolutely no sign of tampering and neither do the tiny bones, end quote. Cool. That was my first thought, too. Oh, there's a two-headed animal? We'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially coming from China, because there's the biggest problem with forgeries tend to come from there. There's been a few of those avian dinosaurs that were too kind of smooshed together. So it'd be cool if they found a two-headed dinosaur at some point. Yeah. Or if they had like a two-necked sauropod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And next, thanks to Chris via Twitter for this one, scientists have found a fossil of an ancestor to ichthyosaurs that lived around the same time as dinosaurs. And the animal is Sclerocormus parviceps, and it's got a small head with no teeth, and it shows that marine animals may have evolved quickly after a mass extinction 250 million years ago. It also gives a clue as to how ichthyosaurs came about. Yeah, before this, they hadn't found really any transitional species for ichthyosaurs so that's pretty cool. They had them for the Sauropterygians and the Mosasaurs, but not those guys. Yeah. Next up, the Siberian Times has a picture of a dinosaur model that just went on display at the National Museum of Nature and Sciences in Tokyo, and it is awesome. It's of a Kalindodromius, which was our dinosaur of the day way back in our 12th episode, which is over a year ago now. So for a quick recap, it was discovered in Siberia in a deposit estimated at about 160 million years old. And it was about five feet long and walked on its hind legs with its arms held off the ground. And there was evidence at the time that it was partly covered in feathers and partly covered in scales. So a pretty interesting looking find. It was one of the early pieces of evidence for feathers and pretty cool. So in this reconstruction, its thorax, hips, upper arms, and legs, and most of its head are covered in downy feathers, while the rest of it is covered in scales, including its long, fairly thick tail, which looks pretty interesting in comparison, almost like it's wearing like gloves and boots or something. The replica was made by Dr. Pascal Godefroyd from the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences, and it's one of my favorites. It's very detailed and lifelike, plus the feathers just look great, and it's really, really well done. So if you have a chance to check this out in Tokyo, you definitely should. Or at least look at pictures online if you're like us and you're not in Tokyo. <laughs> Maybe someday. Next, according to CBC News, the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum in Alberta, Canada has been getting a lot of awards lately, so congratulations. We'll be stopping there during our July 4th trip. Yeah, it added probably a thousand miles to our trip because it's really, it's in... I think central Alberta, but Alberta is so huge that it's like just way up, way up there. It's like 55 degrees north latitude. Yeah, something like the sun won't be setting until 10, 30, 11 at night. And it never really gets completely dark. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, so we're looking forward to it. The biggest award that the museum has so far is that it was ranked 7th in Condé Nast Traveler's Top 10 Best Museum Openings. And it's also got awards for its architecture, innovation, and civic reach. And it has a lot of educational programs, including summer dinosaur bone bed tours, helicopter tours to remote fossil sites, and lecture series. Really cool. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's going to be an awesome museum. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Next, thanks to George the Gorilla via Twitter for this one. Dinosaurs of China, an exhibition that's coming to Nottingham, UK in the summer of 2017, is looking for sponsors. The exhibit will run from July 2nd, 2017, until the end of October 2017. 
It's not clear what exactly the sponsorship opportunities are, but it's interesting to see such a broad call for sponsors. And the exhibition will have dinosaurs not seen outside of Asia before, as well as big dinosaurs such as Sinraptor and Gigantoraptor, and feathered dinosaurs such as Microraptor. Also, thanks to Oliver via Twitter for this one. We got a lot of great news this week from our listeners. So. Discover Magazine wrote a feature about the paleontologist Nizar Ibrahim, who, among other things, published a description of a partial Spinosaurus in 2014, and we talked about that, and helped solve the mystery of Spinosaurus. So, as you may recall, Spinosaurus was first discovered in 1912 by Ernst Stromer, but the fossils were destroyed in World War II during an air raid on Munich. And Stromer did not support the Nazis, and according to this article, quote, his family and fossils paid dearly for it. Two sons were sent to the front lines during World War II, one died in combat, and the other was held captive by the Soviets for years. His third son was also killed during the war. In 1944, Stromer's pleas to move his fossils were, to safety were ignored, and the bones were reduced to dust in a British bombing campaign, end quote. No additional Spinosaurus specimens were found, so paleontologists had to guess about Spinosaurus based on Stromer's notes and drawings and a few photos. And it was a bit of a curiosity because it had this six-foot-tall sail. Ibrahim was interested in Stromer's story, and he ended up searching for fossils in the Chemchem Rock Formation in Morocco where he found the partial Spinosaurus. And he concluded that Spinosaurus was at least semi-aquatic and had short hind limbs for swimming, which drew some criticism, partly because the specimen that he described is a neotype, meaning all other Spinosaurus specimens found from now on will be compared to this neotype instead of Stromer's destroyed holotype. He said, quote, Spinosaurus is an incredibly sexy dinosaur. No one would get this worked up about a snail or a mollusk. <laughs> I could have named it something new. That might have gotten even more attention. But since the holotype was destroyed, it seemed appropriate to make this the new reference type, end quote. Now, Ibrahim's goal is to, quote, establish a real national museum with research collections in Morocco and get people in that part of the world interested in science and scientific exploration, end quote, which would be really cool. Yeah, it's really important for people near the dinosaur fossils to really appreciate them because like we're seeing with all these huge dinosaur discoveries going on in Argentina and China, that's really fueled by the local interest in them. So mm -hmm. Africa is one of the big places left where we think there are a lot of dinosaurs to be discovered, but nobody's really too interested in going out and looking for them. Yeah, and all kinds of interesting ones too. Yeah, like what else could be related to Spinosaurus? There's got to be something cool there. Mm -hmm. So speaking of people interested in looking for dinosaurs, CBC News gave a list of five tips for fossil hunters. Tip one is to be outdoors and look for erosion, such as tops of mountains, sides of hills, beaches, and riverbanks. Tip two is to be familiar with local geology so that you know which sediments are the right age for dinosaurs. Tip three is to know the laws and get permission to look. Laws vary from region to region, and in some places you're not allowed to collect certain kinds of fossils. Yeah, that's an important one if you don't want to go to jail. Yeah, or pay very <laughs> hefty fines. Yeah. Or both. <laughs> Tip four is to, quote, keep your eyes open and believe in yourself. It's a nice one. <laughs> I guess. If something catches your eye, follow up on it. And last, tip five is to take pictures and contact museums if you find something good. And that's better than removing fossils because there's a lot of information that should be documented before fossils removed. And also proper excavation can be very expensive. And time consuming. Yeah. Probably take you a really long time to excavate it properly and you wouldn't even know where to start, or at least I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't have no idea. Probably accidentally destroy something important. Yeah. And going back to tip number three, sort of, inverse, which I'm 
starting to really like their dinosaur stories that keep popping up every week. They give an overview of four dinosaur crime stories. So the dinosaur fossil market is very complicated because the laws are different everywhere and they're not always clear. In most cases, they're not clear at all. And so this first crime story, it's about the sale of a Tarbosaurus patar. And in 2012, Eric Procopi from Florida pled guilty to illegally importing the bones, which he put together and sold at auction for about a million dollars. The sale wasn't completed, though, because the Mongolian government got involved to get the skeleton back. And it was pretty clear that Eric could have only gotten the fossils from Mongolia, where it's illegal to take fossils from. And then what was interesting is that he sold it at a high-profile auction. Hmm. He was sentenced to three months in prison, three months at a halfway house, a year of probation, and 100 hours of community service. Yeah, maybe some of the laws are unclear, but I think just about everyone knows you can't export from China and Mongolia. (laughs) (laughs) At least they should if they're doing any research there or any digging. Yeah, I think that's what was interesting about this case. Yeah. The second crime story is about a group of college students from Texas who stole 60 pounds of fossils from Utah, and they were worth about $2,500, and this is while they were on a geology field trip. As you mentioned earlier, the problem with just digging up fossils is you lose a lot of information in the rocks surrounding the fossils. So I think the school is looking into kind of new policies on what to do while they're on these field trips. The third story is about Nathan Murphy, an amateur paleontologist who found some raptor bones on private property in the U.S. and then claimed he found them somewhere else. The bones were worth about $400,000, and the lie cost Murphy his reputation, and he was sentenced to 60 days in jail. And the last story is about Jared Ellers, who happened across a three-toed dinosaur print and told some friends about it, and he took it. Then he found out authorities were on the lookout for the print, And I guess he didn't know what else to do, so he threw it into the Colorado River. He pled guilty, and he was sentenced to one-year probation, and he has to pay Utah back the $15,000 that the state spent trying and failing to find the fossil that he threw in the river. Which is sad. It's too bad he panicked. Yeah. Of course, the craziest dinosaur story I think we've heard, though, is about Pete Larson, who we interviewed in our first episode, and if you want to learn more about his crazy story, (laughs) watch the documentary Dinosaur 13. Yeah, with a lot of these, like the one where the man found some raptor fossils on private property and then pretended like they were from somewhere else, it's a lot easier now to prove where you found things because you can take geotagged pictures and things like that. But back when Pete Larson started doing excavations, it was a lot more difficult to tell what kind of land you were on because you had to do it based on maps. They didn't have GPS. Yeah. So you had to figure out, am I in a park? Am I on somebody's private land? Am I on public land where this is allowed? Who do I need rights from? And all that. And then in this case, it was just an issue of paperwork, more or less. Yeah. Speaking of theft, though, we've got a real dinosaur theft story next. In Bushwick, Brooklyn, someone has stolen seven handmade dinosaur costumes. And the costumes, they're these sparkling bodysuits with large dinosaur masks. And they were in this box in front of this venue called the House of Yes for a few minutes, quote, before organizers could bring them inside for an animal-themed dance party headlined by aptly named tech house duo Monkey Safari. Hmm. This is according to the article in Brooklyn Paper. It took 80 hours to make the costumes, and the House of Yes is offering a $300 reward to recover the costumes, no questions asked. So, I hope they do get them back. New Yorkers, have you no shame Hmm. stealing dinosaur costumes? Yeah, it's too bad. 
But speaking of dinosaur costumes, George Springer, the Houston Astros outfielder, put on a T-Rex costume and then played football in the baseball stadium. There's no real explanation as to why he did this, but the video is pretty entertaining, and he can't really catch the ball with his T-Rex arms, as you might expect, but it looks like he's having fun. It's funny that he chose to play football when he's a professional baseball player. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he figured it'd be easier to try to catch a football in a T-Rex costume be. than to hit a ball or catch a baseball. That could be. Well, you can't really wear a mitt with T-Rex arms. I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> or you could, and then it might make it easier to catch than mm, a football. Maybe. I've not seen one of those costumes up close. So I don't know the hand situation. That's true. It'd be kind of funny to see one with like a baseball hat and a big mitt on them. Yeah. <laughs> Next is kind of an odd story. In South Carolina, a 16-year-old boy was arrested for writing as part of a homework assignment that he said, quote, I killed my neighbor's pet dinosaur. So the assignment was to write a Facebook status, and that was his first status. And then the second status said, quote, I bought the gun to take care of the business. And he's been suspended from school and charged with disorderly conduct, though the police department and school say that his dinosaur status is not the reason he's been arrested and it was because of his behavior. According to the Daily Mail article that wrote about this, also kind of interesting, you a British newspaper writing about what's going on in South Carolina, <laughs> they said his mother was never contacted and that teachers contacted school administrators after he used the word gun in his Facebook status. Yeah, there's a lot of schools that have these zero tolerance policies and they would consider that a threat or whatever. I guess I could see that, but he's talking about a dinosaur. Unless he means a pet bird. Unless it's like another one of those incidents, like with Spielberg, with his picture of the sick triceratops on Facebook, and people <laughs> were like, how could you, that I, poor animal? Well, they did say that he got arrested for something unrelated, and this was probably just what they could find on Facebook. Yeah, we don't really know what happened. Yeah. But if that is the reason, it just sounds odd to me. It does sound odd. In other news, the dinosaur ride at Disney's Animal Kingdom is shutting down from July 25th to September 29th for refurbishment. It's not clear what kind of work they'll be doing to the ride or if they'll be making any changes. I'm kind of wondering if they'll add anything good dinosaur related. That'd be cool. Yeah, that could be. Next in Comanche, Texas... Comanche Elementary School raised $3,500 for a theropod dinosaur statue named Tracy. The school raised the money in just two weeks, and the first grade class got to name the dinosaur because they raised the most money of all the classes. This dinosaur is now going to be part of the school's curriculum, and according to the article in KTXS, quote, A major flood in Comanche County in the 1920s led Southern Methodist University researchers to discover the most extensive dinosaur collection in the state of Texas, end quote. That's really cool. I wonder what they're going to want to name it. Tracy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So those first graders decided to make it a female and call her Tracy. I wonder how they picked Tracy. They said they don't remember. What? Just happened. They did a vote. That's funny. Yeah. Next, there's a dinosaur park in Louisiana called Prehistoric Park, and it has 23 lifelike dinosaurs that sit on 12 acres. On June 4th, they will be hosting a family fun day, and they'll have a petting zoo and be screening dinosaur documentaries. And in Montville, Connecticut, a man named Jeff Wells has 40 life-size dinosaurs in his backyard, including a T-Rex. And I say he's doing something right. <laughs> that is a lot of dinosaurs, especially life-size ones. Mm -hmm. 
So he's an artist and a retired designer, and he's been building these dinosaurs since 1981. And he was a designer for this company called Electric Boat, where he learned how to weld and craft metal. And according to the article about him in The Day, quote, Some of them hang from trees, some blend into the leaves, some like the T-Rex look like they could eat you up at any moment, others look as if they could be picked up with one hand, and they're all free to look at as long as you knock on the door and let the Wellses know you're there, end quote. It's pretty nice. Yeah, that's cool. And last but not least, we have some VR news, which I always like to talk about. So there's a new game called Time Machine VR that was released for Oculus and Vive. I just downloaded the game and tried it out on the Oculus Rift for the first time. It's really fun. From what I can tell, there aren't any actual dinosaurs in the game, but it does seem to mostly take place in the Mesozoic. The premise is that you're on the Norwegian island Svalbard sometime in the future. I think it's like 2030-ish. And then you go back in time to the Mesozoic to do scientific research. Early on, you see a sauropterygian called Pliosaurus eating a bunch of prehistoric turtles and then eventually trying to eat you. (laughs) And you're in this underwater submarine slash floating time machine capsule thing. It's pretty intense because when you're underwater and you're trying to do investigations, you have to like briefly freeze time and then try to rush in and do some scans of the animals and then rush away before the time freeze runs out and then they try to eat you. It's a lot of fun and so far pretty scientifically accurate. It's especially cool being able to move around in an environment where there are all these extinct animals around you. And I definitely recommend it if you took the Ancient Marine Reptiles course from the University of Alberta, since you can really get a feeling for a lot of the things that they talk about in the course. I just finished the course yesterday, and it's really cool to see these pliosaurs swimming around with their big paddle flippers and then going after some of the other animals that they talk about in the course. It's really cool. There are parts of the game that take place on land with you flying around in the present on that Norwegian island. So hopefully they'll add some actual dinosaurs and let us do some exploring on land too, maybe in the future. I'm hopeful at least. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like a cool VR game. Another cool dinosaur game that just launched on Kickstarter is Saurian, and you may remember them when we interviewed them a while ago, but they had been at it for a few years, a remote team kind of working on this game in their free time, and they what's really great about it is the amount of research that they put into the Hell Creek formation and making their dinosaurs and the environment as realistic as possible, or based on what we know. So they launched their Kickstarter just a few days ago, and they've already met their goal, which is great. They have some good stretch goals. If they raise $205,000, they'll make it VR. And so Garrett and I pledged. Yeah, we pledged. I think we did the $40 level where the T-Rex says your name in the credits, which is a limited time one, so that might be gone by the time this airs. But they had a different one where I don't think it was limited, where if you paid $40, you could get your name written in the credits. But their cheapest one where you actually got the game was $15. So that would also be good. And probably worth it. All of the images of their game look fantastic. Yeah, it is really cool looking. And it's kind of funny. One of the rewards, I think there was another $40 one. They had quite a few $40 ones where you got a feather from their what they call their resident dinosaur, which is a emu, I think. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. 
where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now for the dinosaur of the day, a Belosaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon. So thanks, Cole. And the name means Abel's lizard, and it was an Ablosaurid theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Argentina. And it was named after Roberto Abel, who found the type specimen, and was also the director of the Museum of Tiopoletti in Argentina, where the specimen is kept. Abel found the holotype in 1983. He found one fossil. It's a partial skull with no lower jaws, but the skull is estimated to be 33 inches or 85 centimeters long. It was named by Jose Bonaparte and Fernando Emilio Novas in 1985, and the type species is Ablosaurus comahuensis. The species name is in honor of the Comahue region of Argentina where the bones were found. And the paper about it was, again, published in 1985, and it was called Ablosaurus comahuensis carnosauria from the late Cretaceous of Patagonia. And it was a carnivore. It grew up to be 23 to 30 feet or 7 to 9 meters long. This is based on the one partial skull estimate. Though Gregory Paul estimated in 2010 that it weighed 3 tons and it was 33 feet or 10 meters long. It was probably an apex predator. And Gregory Paul said, again in 2010, that it may have hunted titanosaurs. And it probably had short front limbs and long legs. Ablosaurus helped scientists better understand theropods from the southern hemisphere. It had a broad skull in the back, so Bonaparte and Novus compared it to Tyrannosauridae, which had wide skulls. There's some differences, though, so it's not part of the Tyrannosaur family. But they think that Ablosaurus looked like a smaller T-Rex. Ablosaurids have short heads, and the skulls may have had a crest based on rough ridges on the snout. 
They had four small teeth in the premaxilla, and the maxilla had seven to thirteen larger teeth. They had high eye sockets and large fenestra in the skull above the jaw, and the holes in the skull make it lighter, which may have helped it balance its large skull. There's larger holes in the skull than in Tyrannosauridae. So because of Ablosaurus, they created a new family called Ablosauridae, and originally they thought it was Carnosauria, but then other Ablosaurids were found, like Carnotaurus, Majungasaurus, and that shows that they were Neoceratosauria instead of Carnosaurs. In 2009, Nova said that Ocosaurus, which is another Ablosauridae, may be a junior synonym of Ablosaurus, but that hasn't been accepted. Ablosauridae means Abel's lizards, and it's a family of theropods. They lived in the Jurassic and Cretaceous in Gondwana, and they've been found in Africa, South America, India, and Madagascar, and they may have also lived in the late Jurassic in Portugal. They're carnivorous with stocky hind limbs and short but tall skulls and crests on the skull. Most were between 17 to 30 feet or 5 to 9 meters long, and only a few advanced ablosaurids have been found with complete skeletons, so it's not clear exactly how they all looked. Many are known from skull bones. But the skull is similar to Carcharodontosaurids, so the groups may have been related. Very cool. You don't hear too much about non-sauropods being found in Argentina, so that's cool. Our fun fact of the day comes from that Coursera course on theropod dinosaurs that I liked so much. They point out that neoornths, also known as modern birds, diversified extremely quickly at least 50 million years ago, but it's unclear exactly when, and it may have happened just after the end Cretaceous max extinction as a result of all the new niches that were left behind by dinosaurs going extinct. But there's a technique called the molecular clock that places the diversification during the Cretaceous when they still would have been competing with all those other dinosaurs that hadn't gone extinct yet. So the molecular clock is the idea that animals experience a steady rate of mutations in their genetic code, and by the number of genetic mutations of similar animal lineages, we can estimate when the split of a common ancestor occurred. So apparently, when comparing bird lineages, researchers have found that as many as 42 major avian groups may have split before the end of the Cretaceous. So it's possible that there are confounding factors, like the mutations happening more quickly during that diversification right after the KT extinction, but nevertheless, it's a good piece of evidence that dinosaurs were already turning into birds in the Cretaceous or very closely thereafter. And it makes sense because if they weren't already at least starting to diversify before the end of the Cretaceous, it seems to me that they would have been more susceptible to go extinct at that extinction event along with all the other dinosaurs. Yep, very interesting. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and if you would like to join our growing group of supporters on Patreon, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time. Good day.